Alex. Hey, Adam. And hello, everyone. It's another episode of Liver Talks. Yes, it is. From the Liverfellow mm-hmm. Network. So we have a great episode today. We had a great interview with the Dr. David Goldberg, Dr. Liver on Twitter. It was an incredible conversation that spanned a lot of different topics because his research has spanned a lot of different topics. But I think we learned a lot uh, from the pod, and hopefully you guys will too. One thing that you will definitely learn from the pod is that... Um, he has both a small dog <laughs> and a uh, small daughter who both uh, can be heard in the background intermittently. But I can promise you that the content of the interview uh, makes it worth it. All right. And then at the end, we're going to talk about a couple of things we read that we found yep. interesting and wrap it up and, and see everyone in a month. So I guess without further ado, we'll hand it on over to we'll get to the interview. Yes. So we are thrilled to have Dr. David Goldberg on the podcast today. Dr. Goldberg is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Digestive Health and Liver Diseases at the (laughs) University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, a prolific researcher, and the man behind the Dr. Liver Twitter handle. Uh, Dr. Goldberg, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is my first time being on a podcast, so I'm very honored. It's an honor for us. Um, so we were hoping that we could just start uh, by having you tell us a little bit about your practice and your research interests. Sure. So I am mainly, I'm a, I guess, a physician scientist. I do 80% clinical research, um, sort of across the spectrum, um, health services research, um, organ allocation, um, have, you know, a lot of areas of research and like to work with med students and residents and fellows, you know, my funded research right now is I have two R01s and a U01. Um, one R01 focuses on developing um, long-term predictive models of patients pre and post liver transplant mm-hmm. with the goal of trying to put together a survival benefit score. The second R01 focuses on using sort of novel um, statistical modeling techniques to better predict um, allograft outcomes of kidney and liver allograft. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously with statistical and nephrology collaborators. And the last is a U01 that just got funded about three weeks ago. That's to run a multi-center trial of transplanting kidneys from hep C infected deceased donors into hep C negative recipients. Um, but in terms of my research, one thing is sort of, I never focused on a disease. I know a lot of mm-hmm. people tell fellows, you must focus on a specific disease. And <laughs> I never really did that. I, I focused on a sort of methodology and sort of broad areas of research, but my mentor, you know, was a pulmonologist who did work from end of life care to smoking cessation to lung transplant. So and everything in between. So I, I never really did that. Very interesting. Uh and congratulations on the the recently funded you. Um so a lot of the things that you've just mentioned, we'd like to dive into uh, a little more, and it's a bit of a grab bag because it covers a lot of different topics. But we thought we'd start with the fact that fairly recently, uh, CMS just announced new rules surrounding oversight for uh, OPOs, or organ procurement organizations. Um, and these changes were partially due to research that you've been doing throughout your career uh, thus far. And so... OPOs are definitely a part of transplantation that I think certainly trainees, but a lot of people within hepatology probably uh, don't understand completely, but is obviously critically important to transplantation. And so we were hoping that you might be able to start by just telling us a little bit about the landscape of OPOs and what they do. Right. So I think, you know, I think people do get confused about this and actually was on a, a call earlier and 
about organ donation research and someone asked, what exactly is an OPO? So OPOs, they're nonprofit organizations that in essence manage all aspects of organ donation within a, a given geographical area. Um, you know, people get confused with the terms OPO and DSA or donor service area. Mm -hmm. An OPO is the organization that manages donation in that given area. And managing donation involves sort of, you know, from the time a donor is identified and called till the time an organ is procured, they're sort of, you know, largely the the quarterbacks, the general managers of of that process, but also have um, duties that extend beyond that, public education, helping with organ donation, registry, and things like that. And each one functions within a geographic area and has, in essence, contractually works with all of the hospitals in that area. What impact do you think this new oversight and these new changes by the CMS will have on organ procurement and sort of by virtue of that on patient care for for our people that are sort of on a wait list? So, I mean, I think the first step, and you know, people say, well, how is this changing the metric and changing the rules going to make donation better? I think there is one thing about you know, accountability and having an mm-hmm. objective way to evaluate OPOs in and of itself can change things. And you know, give two examples. There were two papers published in AJT over the last few months by colleagues of mine at Emory and Hopkins. One was where they used this new CMS metric to work with the OPO in Indiana as sort of a performance improvement to say, okay, let's look at these data to try and see areas where you're maybe not performing as well as you can. And they noted that their donation rates really dropped off among older donors. And I believe it was donors starting at age 50. They work with them then sort of looking at the process to say, oh, wait, maybe we weren't following these donors as much. We weren't as aggressive in pursuing them. They rapidly increased the number of donors through that. So hmm. it's the metric that leads to that ability to performance improvement. There is also the potential of you know the Hawthorne effect. You know, you're mm-hmm. being watched now, <laughs> so people may increase their performance. And that same group, you know, led by colleagues at Emory, Ray Lynch, and Brianna Doby at Johns Hopkins, showed that in twenty nine starting in twenty nineteen, organ donation rates improved dis- by a greater amount than one would have expected based on historical trends hmm. and suggested because there have been thoughts, well, now that there's you know news articles and scrutiny of OPOs that people may not want to donate it, at least suggested that things were going up and then 2020 went up, continued to go up that, hmm. you know, maybe it's sort of, you know, big brothers now watching you with this more objective metric, there's increased scrutiny, that may help. So I think the hope is, again, you know, there's been a lot of stuff put out there that, you know, this will lead to all these OPOs being decertified and things like that. The thing that I think is important to understand is with the metric is that there's a cushion there, that it's, you know, the you are sort of in the warning zone if the upper limit of your confidence interval is below that of the top 25% OPOs. Mm-hmm. So if all OPOs get better and they're all performing at the same level, no one gets decertified. So the analogy a colleague said, it's not like the Olympic trials where only three people make the track and field team. Yeah. If everyone running you know, the 100 meter is within five milliseconds of each other, they all make the team. So mm-hmm. this in and of itself is trying to hold them to a better standard, and that in and of itself may help improvement. Yeah. I, I think intuitively it makes a lot of sense to be tracking these, uh, especially since it's a way of sort of uh, helping with improvement at individual OPOs and by virtue of that increasing uh, donation rates or available organs. And so... I think a lot of us within clinical research think of the way that research is going to impact patients 
in that, you know, a doctor or a provider will see it and then uh, sort of act on it and change the way that they sort of practice. But in this case, your research actually led to regulatory changes. And so I'm curious what your experience was with that in sort of having your research impact national policy. So it's funny, you know, like I, you know, when it happened and the Federal Register came out and my name was in it, I emailed a bunch of my mentors at Penn, you know, my health services research mentors, and they're like, you know, we all too often say we want to impact policy, but it doesn't mm-hmm. happen that much. Yeah. So it was really cool, you know, like, you know, yeah. and that's something I ex- expected. I think, you know, again, it's it's weird because, you know, we should publish a study showing X drug works. We then as the provider are then the one prescribing this. Mm-hmm. I had nothing to do with how the policy was written per se. I just published the data that was then used. So you're somewhat detached in a way. Mm-hmm. Um so it's a little bit different because, you know, I wouldn't know how to write policy. I could just do studies. Um, but definitely, you know, it definitely is not for the faint of heart because unlike, you know, you publish a study and you say, well, you know, terlopressin is better than midadrenoctreotide. You're not going to get the makers of midadrenoctreotide, you know, having expressing vitriol towards you. Whereas something like this, you know, you have to be willing, you know, you put yourself out there, which I think definitely mm-hmm. did, you know, I think ultimately, and I think, Over time, I sort of learned how to better negotiate was that I'm not out to get anyone, that this was about research. And I I think I started to personalize it more, you know, because people thought I was this person who was against OPOs and all of that, you know, that I had my college roommate got a liver transplant, my wife's best friend baby got a liver transplant, both in, you know, New York, where, you know, my college roommate had to wait much longer than he needed to. The baby needed to get a living donor, and I think part of it, it sort of saw the personalization like, wow, if donation infrastructure there was better, maybe this would have happened sooner or they wouldn't have mm-hmm. had to get a living donor, you know, mm-hmm. or had to wait so long. So it's it, this research was stuff I did receive funding for a brief period of time um, from the Arnold Foundation. I have to disclose that. I've never met the Arnolds. I don't really know much <laughs> about them. I thank them for their funding this, but it was more of this is more of a personal sort of. Yeah. Project were, were there aspects of that journey that surprised you in terms of people that you came into contact with as you sort of had your research put out there? Like, was it were you sort of divorced from the process, uh, or did you find yourself being sort of included in the process despite the fact, you know, as you said, that this was mostly your research being utilized to influence public policy? The process of how the the thing. Sure. Was yeah. Yeah. That's, I was, you know, really sort of divorced from it. I mean, I think what. We did something is that we, you know, after the first iteration when there were public comments, we then did some other research and I sort of spoke to people as this was being developed. And, you know, when it first came out, you know, there were people saying, well, we have problems because they don't look at ventilated death, so they don't count for cause of death. So we then took that to then say, let's look at what would happen if you accounted for that, but never really sort of in the nitty gritty writing. And like when it came out, like that was the first time I'd ever seen it. So like it was sort of like wow that's kind of yeah, cool that's awesome yeah so shifting gears just just a little bit um, another major theme of your research is around optimization of organ allocation um, and so kind of inadvertently as COVID nineteen pandemic hit the United States there was a shift from donor service areas to acuity circles um, in liver allocation. And you recently were part of an authorship group that wrote, I think it was in liver transplantation, looking at the first six months impact of this change in allocation policy. 
Um, I was wondering if you could summarize some of the findings that you had or some of the key points from, from that paper. Going back, the reason actually that I got into the organ donation research is actually mm -hmm. when this whole redistricting was being discussed, I presented at first forum, um, the OPTN forum, I guess this was in 2014, and about sort of my research on waitlist access and things like that. And the question of variability in organ donation performance came up. Um, and we then, with some colleagues, published a paper using eligible death data, which then was criticized because eligible deaths were flawed. And that sort of led me on this journey to doing this organ donation metric stuff. You know, I think the acuity circles thing, and I think it, it has to be sort of couched in, this was also happening during COVID, right. was trying to explore what happened during the early stages of acuity circles, acknowledging that it, it coincided with COVID. You know, I think some of the things, you know, is early, but, you know, travel increased, median allocation mail, the, the variance didn't change that much. Um, and there were sort of, you could argue, winners and losers, you know, centers that had to travel a lot more, but did more transplants. And there were places that traveled a lot to do fewer transplants. So it was really sort of a descriptive report. And I think it's too early of six months of data to really say what's wrong. I think, you know, my perspective has always been is if you're going to have this, I think, arguably seismic shift in how you allocate it, it has to be, you have to be able to get something for it, you know, saving more lives, increasing life years, you know, access to the sickest patients. But I think one of the things that may we wait to see is, at least in certain parts of the country, is it led just to not much change and just a lot of crisscrossing of organs. With the yeah, with with the caveat of the the pandemic, was were the, some of the findings surprising to you, or is this kind of what you expected to to find? Or um, you know, I, I guess how how did the the findings sort of hit you at first glance? I, to be honest, I, it it was sort of as I expected. You know, I, I thought that you know travel would go up. I mean, I think that's not surprising. I think centers would mm -hmm. respond differently to it. You know, some centers. Again, we didn't look at this, but maybe we were more willing to travel, more willing to take that risk, more willing to use more marginal organs. But I also didn't think that at least early on it was going to make this major change in MELD because ultimately, you know, one of the things that you can never model is behavioral changes. Right. Um, and again, this is too early, but, you know, I've heard anecdotally some centers say, well, we've transplanted more high MELDs, you know, more patients with alcohol hepatitis. So again, if you're transplanting sicker MELD patients, you may not be able to normalize the MELD a transplant. Yeah. Is there are there any changes that that you would like to see either from a public policy standpoint or from an allocation or more broadly like an allocation standpoint specifically that might address some of the disparities that we see along gender or, or racial lines? So again, I, I, this has not been my work, and people like Jen sure. Lai and Betsy Vernon and others have published this, but I think the gender thing, like you know, changing to some either GFR estimating equation based mm -hmm. um, MELD score just intuitively makes sense, you know, because of the way creatinine may disadvantage women. I think also, you know, Jen Lai and I think Jin Gi has done papers about, you know, smaller organs to smaller recipients, which would benefit maybe women or small men. But I think these things that I don't think I would think are less controversial. You know, I think there was a good change with the pediatric priority, like let the kids have first offers for pediatric organs, yeah. you know. Um, the other thing, again, and I know this has been debated, but, you know, as it comes to splitting organs, again, I don't un know all of the nuances, but to me, if a center is willing to take the effort um, to split an organ, which is not easy, and, you know, use a smaller graft than someone, they should get to choose who gets the other graft the other side to maybe incentivize splits. Shifting gears once again, as you sort of just alluded to, a lot of the focus is on 
transplanting the people with the highest meld uh, as part of a severity of illness being the major driver of who should be getting transplanted. Uh, But there is starting to be more focus on how to determine who's going to do best once they actually are transplanted. Uh, And so the frailty work with Dr. Lai's group at UCSF is certainly front of mind here. But you also recently published on the light score, uh, which is a variety of clinical variables and labs that you would know, anybody would know, pre-transplant, that seem to pretty well predict post-transplant survival as well as sort of morbidity. Right. I think, I think I'm not sure how it's going to be incorporated. I think it mm-hmm. takes time, but I think most people would agree that we have to at least in some ways consider post-transplant survival. I think mm-hmm. the challenge, of course, is how you incorporate it. You know, it can't be the only metric because then you're always going to give it, you know, the youngest, healthiest person. Right. But I think it needs to be incorporated somehow. I think, you know, the way we had framed it in our papers and discussed it is at the very least a tiebreaker. You know, Mm -hmm. if you have, you know, and again, I think, you know, Betsy Vern has done great work, you know, in, in, you know, a place where we all train in New York, how you can check someone's blood at five different labs and get five different MELD scores. So, you Mm -hmm. know, a MELD of 31 and MELD of 32, if one of them has a predicted survival of nine years and one has a predicted survival of six years, to me, again, I think you have to think beyond, you know, waiting time is the only objective tiebreaker you use, which Mm -hmm. I think is is problematic. I don't think we're there yet to do survival benefit based scores. We're trying to work on better models to predict, you know, longer term survival without a transplant. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be considered some way. The problem is that I think it has to be incorporated at, you know, in two ways, either at the national level or with changes in center metrics. Because right now, you know, center metrics are one and three year survival. So although we would want everyone to think about the five and ten year it may mm-hmm. not be in someone's mind. And, you know, there is also always that competition aspect. So, you know, if you, you know, have a, have a patient with a MELD score of 32 and has a predicted survival of nine years and patient down the road has the same MELD score and predicted survival of six years, but their patient has more waiting time, they're not going to say, oh, no, you guys have it, right. you know, you, your patient. So I think it has to be a sort of broader policy. I think by and large, most people think that it's right to at least consider post-transplant survival, mm-hmm. I think we still need to work out the best way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. To that end, is there any, you know, particular kind of data that you think would be most helpful or most interesting in looking at in terms of more accurately predicting post-transplant well, survival? Well, I think if, if we had, you know, I think to incorporate with the light score, I think you know better sort of objective frailty data because I think that predicts mm-hmm. it. You know, again, you have to always think about it though. You know how frailty can affect both pre- and post-transplant survival. So, you know, similar to age, you know, people who are older on average have a lo- lesser post-transplant survival, but they also have lesser pre-transplant. So the net benefits, so there's probably that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. You could argue, though, the challenge is, you know, taking this all a step back in who centers decide to wait list because there's variability mm-hmm. there. And I think, you know, there's really not been much data published on that because we don't have... Um, you know, a USRDS of liver disease. I think, you know, Russell Rosenblatt and the Cornell group published a paper that, you know, blacks may have less access to the wait list. So I think we need to think more upstream, but I think slowly the community is working towards there. It's just a matter of at what pace. Mm-hmm. I think at least from a policy standpoint, hopefully we move can move beyond this geography stuff and think about 
ways to improve who we give livers to. Great. So you, you had alluded to your uh, work in kidney transplantation and specifically transplanting hep C positive kidneys into hep C negative recipients. Um, you know, the practice within liver disease has really taken off in the last few years as a way to expand the donor pool. And uh, recently it was announced that you'd be co-leading uh, the Thinker Next trial to study this uh, practicing kidney transplant. Um, given that this is now, you know, being adopted somewhat widely, what are the key questions that, that you think remain unanswered regarding the transplant of, of hep C positive organs into hep C negative recipients? And what is it that you're hoping to answer with the, with the larger trial? Right. So, you know, this has sort of been a, a labor of love for many years. We first <laughs> applied for a U34 probably three or four years ago, and it was a process with different institutes and things like that. You know, in talking to, to colleagues, I think, you know, many agree that I think this is a practice that is advanced faster than the science. So mm -hmm. as an example, you know, a colleague was, uh, was at the virtual ISHLT, the Heart Lung Transplant Conference, this past, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and was sending me all these texts of different centers' data. And a lot of centers are doing it, but several centers, and I think Brigham, with the largest experience, showed at higher risk of rejection in these recipients. But we don't know why. We're still figuring it out. And the problem is that people are doing this as quote-unquote standard of care, standard practice, and not necessarily studying this. So I think we're, we're fully aware that many centers are doing this now, and the competition now is different than it was three or four years ago. But I don't think that minimizes the value of the science, because I think there's several unanswered questions. So first, you know, simple one is, what are the cure rates? So we... There we suspect it's going to be 98, 99%. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think in a large number. Second of all is the long-term graph function. We have published on the one-year graph function to match comparators, but we need to study that in a larger number of patients that's adequately powered. And one of the things you could argue is that if we sort of confirm earlier studies that these organs perform better than those with the similar qualities, that maybe that kidney points in the kidney donor profile index will go away because those higher scores may unfortunately dissuade centers from using these organs. I think um, third is sort of, you know, what is the survival benefit accepting one of these organs? We know that there's still some reticence from patients to accept these organs. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know anything about what these kidneys, we have some data about how they function. We don't actually know what the hep C is doing to these kidneys on a sort of microscopic level. So we're studying the pathology. And the last one, which I think is going to be more and more important, is this issue of the CMV post-transplant. So, you know, the group at UC Methodist had published of significantly higher rates of CMV infection. Now, they just looked at viremia, didn't have matched comparators or adjudicate survival, but there was a hint there that's been sort of seen in other studies, but no one is studying it in a focused way. We have ID doctors that are adjudicating all cases. We're going to have matched comparators and be biobanking for other sort of exploratory immunologic studies. So I, I think it's ultimately going to answer questions that we need to really fully understand it. So we, places are doing it, and I don't necessarily think it's wrong when you're trying to do something to save your patient, mm -hmm. but I think there's things that we fundamentally don't understand. And I think the last thing is also at the end of the day, you know, we had published this that even as this practice has become adopted, there's been disparities in who's getting these organs, mm -hmm. racial minorities and those that are less educated or less likely to get them. Now, is that an implicit bias? Is there an education in explaining hepatitis C or it might be an unmeasured financial 
barrier that some centers mm-hmm. are pre-screening and only taking accepting patients who have certain insurances that are going to have a favorable profile that they'll pay for this and or minimal co-pays or patients that can accept the co-pays. So I think this large network is sort of needed to really, in my mind, prove that this can hopefully be standard of care because I think one of the biggest barriers still is going to be timely insurance access to drug because there's still insurers that don't approve it or don't approve it in a timely fashion. Interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting, and I um, I think we all are very much looking forward to the results. Um, as you're the first person that we've had on that is um, doing a large trial, actually the first person I've really spoken to that's doing a large trial uh, like this, how much time and what was the process in coming up with the name Thinker Next um, as, as you sort of came up with the trial? So the next part was not that clever. That was just – it's the next one. Thinker okay. <laughs> was actually all my first research coordinator as a faculty member at Penn, Maureen McCauley, came up with Thinker because we were thinking of words we wanted in there, and there's a website like acronym.net or something. I've we been typed on the it. words and created it. And Thinker was one of the ones that came up, and we were in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. We had a Rodan Thinker statue there, so it sort all of was makes sense. a natural fit. Yeah, it's almost worth yes. being a trialist just to come up with these, uh, these names. <laughs> right. Because again, though, for our heart study, we came, it was Usher, and then it made it fun because then Hopkins had a a kidney study of abbreviated therapy that they called Rihanna. It was getting hot in there. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I I, I guess, you know, because, you know, what we should have done is that given that, you know, the the two leads are in Philadelphia and Miami. We could have gotten a Will Smith thing, you know, yep, yep. from Philly's things about Miami, you know. <laughs> oh, um, so we think a lot of our listeners are uh, early career or, or still in training, and you know, you've, uh, we've touched on like a number of really interesting research topics, and you've had an extremely successful research career thus far. Um, so, we want to ask you before we get into our. our infamous or famous lightning round, if you could pinpoint any experiences you had or, or decisions that you made during your training years um, that helped shape your career and set up some of the success that you've had. So I think, like every, you know, everyone one probably says, it's the mentorship. And I think the best thing that happened to me was when I started as a fellow at Penn, I was in the, the clinical epidemiology training track um, where you got a master's in clinical epi. And at that time, there were three of us my year doing it and only two GI um, people in the faculty, in the, in the department, mm. the epi department. Um, so I was the odd man out, um, and I got assigned a pulmonologist as my primary mentor. Um, the pulmonologist who did organ allocation stuff, and I wanted organ allocation, and it was the best thing for me far and away. Um, and I owe a lot of my success to him, my mentor. But it was helpful, one, because... It allowed me to rapidly become the content expert because when we published our papers or did our work, no one said, this is this Scott Halpern's work? Scott Halpern maybe didn't know what primary sclerosis and cholangitis was before my, my, my master's work. But also it challenged me to sort of you know become the expert in this, but also seeing that he was someone that did not study specific disease sort of is why I didn't. And I think... I had other mentors, including my other mentors, Peter Reese and Jim Lewis, one's a nephrologist, one's an IBD doctor, who do things across the spectrum. So I think having the right mentorship to sort of then look out for me um, in all aspects is what really, I think, made it. Um, And again, I think 
the one piece of advice I give people is people focus so much on my I want I must men, I must go to this program and have this person as my mentor because I want to do fatty liver disease and they do fatty liver disease. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually at least in the clinical research world, I don't think that's the right way to approach it. Obviously, if you're doing some lab-based thing and you want to do CRISPR-based insertions on certain mice and only four people have it, well then yes, you need to go to a fellowship in a lab that has that. But otherwise, I, I don't, you know, some of my most successful mentoring experiences have been with people in different areas different than mine. I think you know, one of my most successful mentors will be joining me as faculty in three months at Miami. Her is a therapeutic endoscopist whose interests are gastric cancer and H. pylori. Hmm. I, you know, knew the bare minimum about that when we started, and it allowed her to become the expert. But it's about the methods, and I think having a good working relationship with your mentor is far better than them having the exact area of research that you're in. Awesome. And the other thing, also, I will say, as much as you can, is you have to have a life outside of your work to decompress, and that's, you know, always been Absolutely. important. For those who follow Dr. Liver on Twitter, I went fishing <laughs> with my, my daughter this weekend in Biscayne Did you Bay. catch anything good? Caught yeah, nice. runs. It what? sounds like you have an important presentation at uh, an elementary school yes. soon as well. That's, that's my scariest <laughs> talk. I, I have to prepare two talks this week, one for the American Transplant Congress and one for oh, kindergarten man. class. Yeah. <laughs> that's a tough crowd. Uh, well... Well, this is a perfect transition from uh, the serious things to the lightning round where we uh, get to talk about things not too related to liver. Um, Just a few quick questions, and you've been very generous with your time, so we'll keep it brief. But first lightning round question. Um, Obviously, a lot of your training and early career was in Philly, and now you are in Miami. So if you had to describe the difference between Philly and Miami in one word, or one phrase. Or one phrase. <laughs> I think warmth across the board. <laughs> Weather, people. I went to med school in Philly. I love Philadelphians, but I yeah, yeah. It's a it's yeah. it's a it's a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> um all right. And what is the last T V show that you watched? Well I have CNN. No, no, no. <laughs> like a like yeah. a dr- big yeah. Anderson Cooper yeah. guy. Yeah. <laughs> Like in general, like last night? <laughs> or like what one? Y- yeah. Or whatever series. <laughs> I am a big fan of Naked and Afraid. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think I could last a night. No way. In the wild. Yeah, I neither. No yeah. way. Yeah. I have yeah. toilet, two ply toilet paper would be my one, you know. <laughs> <item. laughs> yeah, great. This guy brought two ply. <laughs> yeah. um, Perfect. And then um, our last question that we always like to ask um, is what is your favorite liver cell? Oh, I've never thought about that. Um, I don't know. I guess a Kupfer cell. It just sounds fun to say. Yeah. I think you may be our first Kupfer cell. It's just fun to say. It's, it's got great mouth. It does, feel. yeah. The P's. Yeah. The P's, the two F's. Yeah, it really lines know? up on the tongue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Goldberg, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come on. Uh, I, I, we certainly learned a lot today, and I think people We hope this, this will be the second podcast that you listen to. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. All right. right. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Thank you again uh, to Dr. David Mm -hmm. Goldberg for joining us. And to wrap up, I thought we could plug a few things we've read, uh, whether medicine related or not, that might be of interest. Um, I guess I'll Mm -hmm. start. 
so my, my plug this week is for an article in the most recent issue of The New Yorker called The Death of Hahnemann Hospital, which is about pretty much exactly that. <laughs> uh, so you don't need, for, you can save yourself any. about 50,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, for anyone who trained or went to school in the Northeast, especially in the Philadelphia area like I did, uh, Hahnemann was like the ostensible safety net hospital for a city that basically doesn't have uh, many or any uh, public hospitals. And this article, I thought, was an excellent dive into how private equity has eroded uh, this important institution in Philly, and I think it's an important canary in the coal mine for the effect of, of private equity for mm-hmm. healthcare. Or, or maybe we're we're past that stage and it's too late. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, but it's all extremely depressing. So, of course, I highly recommend uh, spending some time reading it. So, what were your what were your big takeaways? Well, my big takeaways are that I think it's really concerning. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many people live in areas whose sort of public or, or local newspaper has been acquired by private equity firms or maybe certain journalistic uh, enterprises online have been uh, acquired by private equity. But I think we've all seen kind of the erosion that some of those uh, that, that those companies kind of strip these these. Uh, these news sources or, or whatnot for, for their assets and kind mm-hmm. of destroy them. And I think that it's, I, I, I get worried that, that what happened to Hahnemann can happen to, to other places. And so it, it's scary. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, I was interested. I admittedly, in the case of this article, did read the title um, <laughs> and the <laughs> subtitle, but I, I've read more about private equity's influence um, on practices. Uh, and certainly the, the issue is, and it's right there on the surface, is that these are profit generating uh, entities. And so certainly in sort of private practices and smaller practices that they've taken over, it's all about increasing throughput as well as increasing uh, billing for the same sort of services. Uh, But I was sort of stunned to even think about the idea of them taking over an entire hospital, let alone the safety net hospital, where the most sort of vulnerable population is being seen already. Um, and that could be exploited, as we've seen with vulnerable populations elsewhere. And so um, I agree, this is sort of a big warning sign of things to come, unfortunately, I think. Yeah, and the article does a really good job of kind of describing the how these private equity guys were kind of um, stupefied by the idea of academic medicine and how I would see the, the throughput of seeing, you know, an intern or resident seeing a patient then attending seeing a patient and how to try to expedite that process. And it just like, you know, didn't just couldn't, didn't compute, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I highly encourage everyone, um, to, to give it a read. I think it's really important. Yeah. Well, I, I, I will be one of those people to give it a read. So thank you for the uh, recommendation. So if you thought your topic was a bit of a downer, um, <laughs> please buckle up. The book that I wanted to plug um, was one I finished about a month and a half ago. And it's called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to Present uh, by David Truer. And it gives this very rich and detailed history of the American Indian experience and history since the massacre at Wounded Knee in 1890 
to roughly the present time. And I wanted to bring it up briefly, both because of some of the more devastating pieces of news uh, recently over the weekend, um, a discussion I listened to on Pod Save the People, and uh, one of our goals for the year. The news that I referred to is, one, this past weekend was the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. And despite how horrific it was, what what's so amazing is that it was basically disappeared from American history. And I know I certainly didn't learn about it until the last year or so. And then the second piece of news from this weekend was the discovery of the remains of 215 um, children at one of Canada's indigenous residential schools. And that made me think about this book because one of the things I learned from the book, uh, amongst many, was that America had a um, large and robust network of boarding schools for uh, American Indians where children were taken at very, very young ages away from their families in an attempt at essentially forced assimilation so that their cultures would be um, destroyed. And many, many children, um, many young children died at these boarding houses, never to be seen by their families, their communities again. And this is just one of the many things that I don't think we necessarily learn about as it relates to uh, American Indians. And the book is full of them. And I think, you know, one of the themes of the last year plus has been that if we don't learn about the things, we can't know them and we can't grapple with sort of our history um, as a country or a world. And if we don't know the things, we can never get to a place where we're actually sort of righting wrongs and uh, trying to have a more equitable society. And so this book sort of helped with this for this specific population. And so turning to medicine and to our podcast, you know, I think this is where disparities research comes in, because the first step is sort of learning about where the disparities and issues are, whether they be across gender, racial, or ethnic lines, um, so that we can move towards a more equitable healthcare system. And the American Indian and Alaska Native communities are amongst the most striking for this. And I think COVID certainly drove that home with significantly higher rates of infection, hospitalization, and death as compared to you know non-Hispanic whites. And so for our pod, since it's liver-related, I, I just scratched the surface. And for liver-related disease, in the American Indian and Alaskan Native populations, chronic liver disease is the fourth leading cause of death, which I found kind of stunning. As compared to non-Hispanic whites, this community is 1.6 times more likely to have chronic liver disease. And then within women within this community, the rates are totally out of control with a 2.3 times higher likelihood of being diagnosed with chronic liver disease and a 4.4 times higher likelihood of dying from chronic liver disease than non-Hispanic whites. And so I think my goal is to try to find someone that can come on and teach us a lot more about uh, liver disease and American Indians and Alaska native populations so that we can sort of shine a a brighter light on this and hopefully at least learn about it so that we can eventually uh, start to think about ways to bridge these gaps. Yeah, it's interesting because the Tulsa massacre is something I did not know about, uh, quite honestly, until I watched (laughs) Watchmen on HBO. And I wonder Hmm. what the Venn diagram is of people who know, knew about the massacre and who also learned about it uh, from this TV show because it wasn't something that I remember learning in school at all. And uh, obviously now that Biden you know, made his uh, speech the other day or yesterday or, or whenever that was, um, I'm sure that number has risen precipitously. But, but prior to that, uh, I'll be honest, I didn't know about it until I watched that show Watchmen. Um, and that's when I learned about it. Um, so uh, 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think we're starting to learn more and more about the very dark history of our country. And by learning about that, we can at least take the first step towards creating a better, juster society moving forward. Um, and so I, I, I think it's worth us sort of acknowledging these things and learning them and then trying to pivot towards solutions moving forward. And for our podcast, I think that will be a lot of discussion of uh, health disparities and, and also bringing on people that are working to sort of change that. Uh, so if anyone out there is interested in this topic, uh, please drop us a line. We'd be more, we'd be very interested in hearing from you and having potentially having you on the podcast. Yes, please do. Um, thank you as always for listening. Um, we have a great episode in July already lined up against all odds, and that'll be a great way to kick off the academic year. Uh, bye Adam. Bye Alex.